And we have our young people who are gone out of town, many of them who have gone uh, down for the Connect Retreat. We pray that they'll have a safe trip, that they'll learn a lot while they're there. And we appreciate Connor and all the parents who have gone down to help them in, in that retreat. You know, as we begin our lesson tonight, there are some topics about which we're just naturally curious. We want to know the answer to them. We, we, we like to think about them and just have our curiosity settled. But in reality, the answer doesn't really matter. Uh, they, it doesn't affect our salvation. It really and truly doesn't matter. What really matters, of course, is getting to heaven in the first place, isn't it? That's what really we need to be thinking about. And how we look when we get there is something I'm pretty sure the Lord has worked out. And he's done that in our best interest and in the best way that anybody ever could. And if we're not satisfied with that when we get there, uh, then uh, I'm pretty sure we wouldn't have got there to start with. Because uh, if we're that shallow, then there are a lot of things that are lacking in our life and the things that, that we do. Now, having said that tonight, I can understand that there are people in our world, members of the Lord's church, Christians, who are, uh, who are even more curious, I'm sure, than, than are some, and I can see why. You know, I've never lost a child, I've never lost a grandchild. But in thinking about that, I'm pretty certain that that's one of the hardest things that a person could ever endure in this life to bury one of our own. So it's not natural sometimes, as we say it, for a parent to bury a child. And yet, as we think about that, we can understand why, in some cases, folks who have lost them would, would be curious about that. For example, here's the one question that a lady asked. She said, is there anyone taking care of my baby in heaven? Or, or is he alone? I just can't go on without knowing that someone is taking care of him. You see, you think about that and you say, well, this little bitty infant has died. Who's going to take care of that infant if he or she has gone on into heaven? You know, a lot of times we want to know if we'll be chubby or thin, if we'll be young or old when it comes to heaven and how we'll look there. We, we want to know about babies and children. Will they grow up or will they remain the same as they were when they died? And so we want to delve into God's Word. Now, as we do that tonight, one thing that we need to remember is that the Bible doesn't specifically answer every question. There are a lot of questions that we may have that we will never know the answer to until we get on the other side of eternity and we're able to converse with God. And so we have to remember that the Bible doesn't answer every single question that we have. And for many of the questions that people have in their mind, I wish that there was a passage that I could say as I preach or teach that, that you can turn to this passage and it gives you the answer to every question and especially to the one that we're looking at tonight. But you know what? Even though the Bible doesn't answer specifically and explicitly every question that, that we have, you see, that doesn't stop us or deter us from searching God's Word, looking through His book to learn as much as we possibly can in regard to the questions that we have. We need to remember that God has given us everything that we need to know. 
And yet that may not be enough to satisfy the human curiosity that sometimes we have. And I may not be able to satisfy your curiosity tonight in regard to how we'll look in heaven. But we're going to do our best to find some of the things that God's Word has to say that that at least gives us some thoughts and gives us some direction in the way that we look at things in regard to this particular question. As we answer our question tonight, I think that we need to talk about the resurrection. That's one of the things that we need to pay close attention to. Some of the things that the Bible has to say about the resurrection will help us perhaps in the way and the, uh, the understanding that we have of how perhaps we'll look in heaven. As we go to the book of John chapter 5 verses 28 and 29, we have Jesus talking about the resurrection. He says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the graves... All who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The King James Version says damnation. The idea, the word that is used there is the decision and by implication justice or condemnation that is given. But we see here that there are two groups, those who have done good and those who have done Evil, but the Bible says that both will be resurrected from the, from the grave. In the book of Acts, chapter 24, verses 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul confirms what our Lord said. He says, in beginning in verse 14, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And so Paul also recognizes the resurrection of everyone, everyone who has lived. But as we think about the idea and the concept of a resurrection, what does the word mean? If you had to define the word as used in Scripture, what, what is a resurrection that, that we're talking about? Well, the word in the original language is a compound word, uh, the first part of which means to up, and the second part means to stand or cause to stand, and thus we have the idea of, of one standing. One standing again. Being able to stand again. You see, the body that dies is laid to rest, as it were, and again there is that raising of that body, that standing again of that body. And so, as one writer says, there seems to be, must be a continuum in some way between the body that is laid down in death and the one that is raised up. Else, when we think about the the very definition of the word, It doesn't make sense if there's not some correlation or some connection between the body that dies and the one that is resurrected. Now let me just hasten to say tonight that when we're talking about this, we understand, we know, that what we have in heaven won't be a fleshly, physical body with flesh and bones like we know here. We understand that. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The Bible teaches us that very clearly. But again, as we think about it, the idea, the concept of a resurrection makes no sense whatsoever 
if there's no connection with what dies and goes back to the, to the dust of the earth, and the idea of the one standing again. We know that the spirit leaves the body when at death, and we know or seem to understand and know from Scripture that it will be reunited in some way with the body that we have. But I want you to think about something that's said in the book of Matthew chapter 10 at verse 28. We can think about this even in regard to the resurrection as we're studying there. Jesus made a statement. He said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body. Where? In Gehenna. In hell. The place of eternal punishment. Don't miss what we have underlined and bolded on the screen. Both body and soul in hell. And so we have the resurrection body that will be reunited with the soul and will be sent either to heaven, its eternal abode for those who are uh, good and those who are righteous, or hell, the one, the place where those who are wicked, those who are evil, will spend their eternity. Now, there's another passage as we consider and continue on, Matthew, or rather Mark chapter 9, verses 43 through 48. Jesus makes an interesting observation, statement here. He says, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. Go where? To go to Gehenna again, the, the place of eternal punishment to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into Gehenna, into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In this passage, it's a hyperbole as we look at it. We, we understand that God is, Jesus is not literally commanding us to take a hacksaw if our hand's going to offend us or cause us to sin and, and saw it off or take a power saw of some kind or anything of that nature. He's using hyperbole as, as he discusses it here. But the idea uh, that I want to bring out is that he speaks about the hand, the foot, and the eye the hand, the foot, and the eye, to go into, to be cast into. It's interesting that Jesus uses two different words regarding the, the two locations. One goes into hell or, or is thrown into hell, as you notice the, the passage there, but one enters into heaven. One enters into heaven. Uh, what if we entered into heaven with our eye or our foot or our hand missing? Uh, would we go there? You know, he talks about that. Would we go there and, and, and only be able to hop around on one foot? Is that what he's saying? You know, it's interesting that he uses these two different words, and I don't know if Jesus is teaching us something here or not. As we study those words that he uses... Enter as opposed to the idea of being thrown into hell or going into hell. Both of them are 
in a in a tense in the original language that that uh, that speaks about an undefined or momentary action. That's the time when you actually enter in there or you you actually go there. But it seems that the idea of simply entering one may also leave the door open for actually dwelling there in another condition. You entered with one hand, you entered with one foot, you entered with one eye, but what about after you're there? Is it changed? Is there something different that is there? Again, as we, I wish we had specific passages, specific ideas where Jesus said, now if you want to know what you're going to look like when you, when you go to heaven, um, just turn over here and we'll write it down. He didn't do that, though. But again, we're looking to see at, at little nuggets of what the Word of God has to say. And you say, preacher, you're talking about the hand, the foot, and the eye, and somebody missing one? Yeah. You know anybody that's missing one? Not because he cut it off because of sin or anything of that nature. I know people who've been born without a hand or an arm. I know people because of accidents who have lost them. They've been amputated for some reason or another. And so that, 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 when I read that, I began to think, I began to wonder. And if you have your Bible, turn to the book of Revelation chapter 22. And, and we want to look at the first two verses of of Revelation chapter 22. The Bible says there, the angel showed me that river of the water of life, bright as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now this is in heaven itself, it seems. The idea is now discussed in chapter 21 and chapter 22. And, and, and notice, I want you to see that I have a word again, bolded and underlined. It's for the healing of the nations. Uh, the word that's translated healing here is, uh, means attending to especially medically, and goes on to the idea of curing. Now, let's do a little thinking and a little studying from the Word of God. In the book of Luke, chapter 9, verse 11, that word is used again. It's not a word that's used very often, but it's used here. And in Luke chapter 9, at verse 11, the Bible says, When the crowds learned it, they followed him. Of course, you can imagine who the him is. They're following Jesus. They followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now, we know what Jesus did when he was on the earth. There were those who, who were sick that Jesus healed. There were those who, who, who had uh, demon possession that Jesus healed. But it's interesting that as these are coming, they, they are cured. Jesus healed was uh, anyone who had need of, of what the tree of life and in heaven itself, of what it offered, what it, what it does. He said he cured those who had that need. 
Well, among those who were cured, what, what were some of their problems? In the book of Matthew, chapter 15, at verse number 30, the Bible says, And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet. And he, here's the verb form of the, of the noun form, he healed them. Now who's mentioned there? The lame. Oh, who are the lame? Well, the lame, one of them is, is one who has had his hand or his foot cut off. That's the definition of the word that's translated lame. The crippled are those who are, are limping. That's the word that's translated crippled. Jesus healed them. It's interesting in Matthew chapter 18 at verse number 8, in Matthew's account of what we just read in the book, from the book of Mark, chapter number 9, that Matthew's account uses these same words, the lame, the blind, and the crippled. He uses them in connection with one who had cut off his hand or his foot or poked out his eye to prevent sin. My question is, is are the leaves of the tree of life that which perfects the spiritual body that the Lord will give us for the healing of the nations? Again, I wish I had a verse that just said outright, this is the way it is. But God gave us enough in His Word for us to know everything that we need to know. And it's interesting how He sometimes tucks little tidbits of information in statements, in concepts and ideas that He puts forth. Question is, <clears throat> why would these need healing? You know, if you went and you didn't have a hand or, you know, we feel like we're not whole here, why would they need healing? Uh, again, let me refer you back to the Old Testament. Look at the book of Leviticus chapter 21. In Leviticus 21, beginning at verse 16, down through the next several verses, there, there's something that's interesting. The Bible says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout your generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of this God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near. A man blind or lame or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand or a hunchback, or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight, or an itching disease, or scabs, or crushed testicles, no man of the offspring of Aaron, the priest, who has a blemish, shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings, since he has a blemish. He shall not come near to offer the bread of God. He may eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and the holy things, but he shall not go through the veil to approach the altar, 
because he has a blemish. That he may not, watch this, profane my sanctuaries, for I am Jehovah who sanctifies them. Even in the Old Testament, not to cast reflection upon those who had some kind of handicap, but in the Old Testament, God would not allow them to approach Him as priests. Now, there's a, there's a spiritual application to that. We, we're lame and we're blind when our sins, and we can't be priests in the New Testament church, as it were. We're all priests, but we've got to get all of those things straightened out. But you know what? Our God is a God of perfection, isn't He? Our God is a God of perfection. And again, is it possible that God uses the leaves from the tree of life that we just read about in Revelation 22, verse number 2, to heal, to make perfect that spiritual body that is in some way related to the old physical body that we had with all of its flaws and weaknesses? Let me say for the umpteenth time tonight, I wish I had a verse, a passage in Scripture that said, this is just the way it is. But we're left to look and to search, to study diligently, as the old King James said it, to try to determine, to figure out the things and rightly divide the Word of God. You see, when we take a look at what those will look like when we get to heaven, we need to look at the resurrection. But you know what? I think as we think about that as well, to answer our question, we also need to talk about the bodies of those in hell, those who are lost. Remember, we've already established from what we read in Matthew, uh, or rather John, and, and what Paul said as well, that there's a resurrection of the dead, uh, of both the just and the unjust, uh, we've also read from the book of Matthew that Jesus said to fear the one who can destroy both the body and the soul in Gehenna and hell. And so let's talk about that body. Does the Bible have anything to say about the bodies of those in hell? We'll look at Daniel chapter 1, or chapter 12, rather, verses 1 and 2. Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of all your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found in the book of life. Now look specifically at verse number 2. Many of those which sleep in the earth, in the dust of the earth, shall awake. Some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. We have Daniel sort of matching what both Jesus and Paul have talked about. A time of deliverance for those who are God's people and also the resurrection of them coming forth from the dust of the earth. Some to everlasting life but some to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel, what do you mean? What do you mean when you're talking about those who, 
who come forth to shame and everlasting contempt. The word shame means reproach or disgrace. The word translated contempt, something that's loathsome, abhorrent, repelling. It seems that those who are resurrected and lose their souls in hell are coming forth as if they are themselves loathsome, abhorrent, and repelling. They're raised to that according to what uh, Daniel tells us here. Brother Wayne Jackson, and uh, I read this statement many years ago, but he makes this statement. He says, These terms do not reflect the notion of attractive creatures. There will be no handsome hunks or glamour girls in hell. The text paints a nightmare sort of picture. Dante's Inferno does not do justice to the horrid environment. You see, Daniel seems to indicate that the condition of those who are lost is, is not just the fire, the eternal flames, if you will, but the condition in which they find themselves. Again, I call your attention back to the book of Matthew, chapter 10, verse 28, the passage we looked at a little while ago. One talks about destroying both the body and soul in hell, but uh, let's highlight another word. Rather fear him who can destroy. Destroy both body and soul in hell. Uh, That word literally means to destroy fully. You know, there are some who would jump on that and they'd say, okay, those who are, those who are wicked, they're, they're going to be annihilated. They just want, they'll just cease to exist. Too much evidence in God's Word for that to be the case. And so, as the Word is defined, literally, it is to destroy fully, either literally or figuratively. You see, God is not the one who's going to make the body just disappear, that resurrected body destroyed in that sense. But he seems to agree with Daniel. That as you look to destroy fully, not to annihilate, but to indicate that the resurrected body of the wicked itself will reflect that ruined condition. No glamour girls or handsome hunks. Notice again Mark chapter 9 verse 48. It speaks of the wicked being thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The worm, Skolex, uh, that was the worm that fed on the dead bodies. But it doesn't die, Jesus says. Not literal worms going to be there. That's not the idea. But it seems to be indicating a gnawing anguish that will never decrease or end of the body that is there. And the pain of the flames continues to cause eternal agony of the body. 
And so, if that is the case with those who are lost, and the body reflects the place, the condition that they are in, would the opposite not be true of the saved? Of those who are forever with God, completed and whole? We remember the passage out of the book of Revelation that talks about God Himself wiping away every tear from their eye, no disease, no death, none of those things. And yet it seems the opposite of those who are lost. But that brings us to the third point tonight. To answer our question, we really need to talk about the body of the saved, don't we? And so we go back to the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verse number 3. We looked at verse 2. Verse 3 says, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You notice the difference? The shame, the contempt for those who are lost. But in contrast to that, he says, The wise, the saved, shall shine like the brightness of the sky. Now, Daniel, are you telling us that, that we're going to glow? Is that your point? I'm not sure that that's what he's telling us. But I do know that the Bible talks about something like that in the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 41 through 43. The Son of Man will send His angels. They will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now watch verse 43. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. The brilliance, the glory of the bodies that we have seems to be indicated here. In the book of Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, Paul writes and says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Again, I'm not sure that the Bible is teaching us that, hey, we're going to glow. I'm not sure that that's what he's saying. But he does indicate there is glory to the body that God gives us. I mentioned at the beginning of our lesson tonight, you know, we leave it basically in his hands and, and, and we think he's going to do a good job, however it turns out. But you know what? We still haven't answered the question that we had from the mother at the beginning of our, le- uh, beginning of our uh, lesson tonight. And, and so, why don't we catch up here? Why don't we consider our question in regard to a baby and talk about that for just a minute or two? Call your attention again back to the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 22 and 23. This is, of course, the story of David and the loss of his child. 
we are reminded that David said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he's dead. Why should I fa- uh, fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him. He will not return to me. Now, there's a lot we could say about that passage tonight, but one thing that David, by inspiration, seems to say is, Hey, when my baby dies, it's going to be with the Lord. That's where David wanted to be. He wanted to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, did he not? Psalm 23, verse 6. And so he seems to indicate that his, his child would be there. And so we established that fact, and we could, well, we could look at other passages and deal with that tonight, but I think that would, should suffice for this good audience to understand that, that the baby doesn't just cease to exist. It's going to be in eternal bliss with, with God. But what about Matthew chapter, or rather Mark chapter 12 at verse 25? Jesus said, he was asked a question about the resurrection and and so forth, and uh, about this uh, woman who had been married to seven brothers, and they all died, and they wanted to know, the Sadducees wanted to know, well, well, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Well, Matthew, rather Mark chapter 12, verse 25 says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. One of the things that's indicated by the words of Jesus is that the family arrangements in heaven are not like we know here on this earth. But when we think about babies, where are babies generally cared for? In the home, God's original plan was in the home with a daddy and a mama. In a home where Daddy and Mama are married to each other. They're cared for. But if there are no homes like that, then who would care for a little baby if he was still just a little baby? Are we saying, well, God, you're going to send that little baby to an orphanage in heaven? Probably not. That doesn't seem to, to fit with what we see from the Word of God. One other verse, look at Revelation 22, verse 3. We've looked at verses 1 and 2. Revelation 22, verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. That's the English Standard Translation. It's more accurately translated by the King James, the American Standard, and the New American Standard as serve Him. You know, it's hard to imagine a baby, a little bitty infant, being able to serve God. And so again, that that seems to be another indicator that this child has somehow been transformed from the little helpless infant that we see here on this earth. But then if, if they're full grown, how would I ever recognize them? If my little baby that I only knew as an infant's grown, how would I ever recognize that baby? Well, 
briefly, we don't recognize solely by physical features, do we? They are people who are burned beyond belief. Yet their family can recognize them by the other traits and characteristics. You know, there was an occasion when Jesus was transfigured, if you will. Peter, James, and John saw two men with him, and they knew immediately who they were. Moses and Elijah. Don't read of anybody telling them that Moses and Elijah were the ones who were with Jesus. But they knew. How did they know? How did they know? In Matthew chapter 8, at verse 11, Jesus said, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. How will we know they're Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Going to have a sign in front of them, sitting on the table? <laughs> not likely. And so when we look, we see that that's not really a good, ob a good objection to say, well, they're grown. They're, they're, they're matured, if you will. I guess what we're saying is, <clears throat> will baby somehow be fast-forwarded to some ideal age? But then on the other hand, what about all those who have grown old in this life? Let's look at it from the other standpoint. Will they somehow be rewound? If the babies are fast-forwarded, you know, the young people are not here. They're, they're, they're down at the connect retreat and many of them don't know what a VCR is how many of you ever rented a tape always had on the top do what please rewind well will the older folks will they be rewound just like the babies are fast forwarded is that what is that what we're saying I don't know and then what would the ideal age be what would it be? Good friends, we're not the first ones to have these questions. There have been Christians, men who, who claim a, an association with Christ, asking these questions for centuries. We may not realize, we think we're the only ones who came up with it. There was a man by the name of Augustine of Hippo, as he's known. Sometimes people simply refer to him now as St. Augustine. He was sainted, I guess you might say, by the Catholic Church. He lived from 354 to 430 A.D. And he had some <clears throat> guesses, just like the rest of us. He speculated that Christ rose again to a youthful age. You remember he was about 33 when he died, but... He said, Christ arose again of a youthful age, about 30 years, therefore others will also rise again of a youthful age. Now, he didn't have any more passages to read than we did. He is guesstimating as well. You say, how in the world could somebody come up with an idea like that? Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. We've already looked at it tonight, but let me... Let me just simply refresh our memory. Who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. I'm not suggesting to you tonight that we'll all look like we're 30. That, that's not the point. 
But I do believe that God somehow handles the situation. That, that, that He would take the soul and the resurrected body of not only one who may in some way be handicapped, but of a little bitty baby. And in some way, some spiritual way, that only God who created the universe and spoke it into existence could fix. Let's summarize tonight. We're simply not told exactly what we'll look like in the next life. What age we'll be. What we'll look like. Whether we're thin or fat. Whatever. We need to understand that. Number two. It seems we'll bear some resemblance to what we look like now. Remember the cut off hand, the cut off foot. What we didn't say was seems to indicate we'll have the same form. Not, not, not physical bones and flesh, but the same form. Some resemblance to what we look like now. Number three. seems that in whatever ways our appearance is imperfect, these traits may not be carried over into our appearance in the next life. Missing a hand, missing an arm, missing an eye. And finally, here's what we do need to remember. For the safe, those babies, those who are mentally impaired from birth up, for the safe and the saved, we must not imagine them as helpless or hurting, rather fully intact and whole and able to fully enjoy the bliss of heaven. Isn't that what matters after all? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 43 says, It, our old physical body, is sown, we bury it. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it is raised in power. I may not have answered your question. I may not have satisfied your curiosity. But at least as we've looked at God's Word tonight, we have opportunities to study more and look more and dig deeper. And isn't that what we need to do with God's Word? Dig and dig and dig and dig. And I guarantee you, when this life is over, even if you live to be a hundred years old, you will never mine all the riches. You'll never get all the treasures. You'll never dig out all the little gems that are found in the Word of God. It may be tonight that you need to come to the Lord or come back to Him, to put Him on in baptism or to rededicate your life to Him. If there's a need in your life that we can assist you with in any way tonight, why don't you come?